0: All right, so last week we saw Jesus defend himself in a very emotional debate with the religious leaders of his day. If you remember from last week, Jesus was there at the temple during the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, and he was surrounded by these Pharisees and these scribes, the religious leaders, uh, who were actually being bullies. And they surrounded the Lord, and they got into this debate. And by the end of the debate, Jesus made an amazing declaration. He said, and I quote, I and my father are, does anybody remember the word? One. One. I and my father are one. And how did they respond? They actually picked up stones to stone him to death, to execute him. And as they were gather around him. Can you imagine the scene, the bullies with rocks in their hands, and there's Jesus on Solomon's porch, his Hanukkah, and you know, they're ready to take him out. They're so angry. And what does he say? He says in chapter 10, verse 32, quote, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, hey, are you going to kill me Because I healed the nobleman's son when he had that really high fever and was about to die. Is that why you're gonna kill me? Because I healed the kid? Are you gonna, we read about that in chapter four. Uh, Are you gonna kill me because the guy at the pool of Bethesda was laying there for 38 years and I gave him the ability to walk? Is that why you're gonna stone me? We read about that in chapter five. Or are you gonna kill me because the guy who was born blind, I gave him the gift of sight? We read about that in chapter 9. Is that why you guys want to take me out right now? And you remember what they said in response? They said in verse 33 of chapter 10, quote, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Well, ladies and gentlemen, praise God. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. But they didn't believe that. And so what did they try to do? They tried to arrest him, but you remember the story. Jesus was able to, I believe, supernaturally escape their hands. Well, after that, Jesus decided, hey, I'm going to take a break from these guys. And so he and his disciples left Jerusalem. They headed east to a more quiet rural area um, on the other side of the Jordan River. We call it modern-day Jordan, uh, but back then it was the district of Perea. So where did it go specifically? It tells us in our Bibles in chapter 10, verse 40. And so look at chapter 10, verse 40. Let's find out where Jesus is. It says that he went again across the Jordan to the place where John, John the Baptist, had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And so Jesus goes to where John the Baptist used to baptize people before he lost his head. You remember that? John, the religious leader, calls out Herod, the political leader, for sin. By the way, how often does that happen anymore? Um, You know, you're not supposed to do that in our day and age because of the separation of church and state, so they say. But ladies and gentlemen, the separation of church and state is not to keep Christians out of government, it is to keep the state out of the church, And when politicians go wrong, we have a duty and a right to be able to speak truth. And that's what John the Baptist did, and it cost him his head. Now, where did he used to baptize? Well, John the Baptist used to baptize. It actually tells us way back in chapter one, we'll put it on the screen. It says, these things took place in, go ahead and say the word, Bethany across the Jordan. So notice, this is not Bethany right next door to Jerusalem, the suburb of Jerusalem. This is another Bethany, Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So there's lots of opinions about where this Bethany, this village of Bethany was, where Jesus was ministering. But what makes the most sense to me is that it was in Perea. Again, if we look at the map, uh, we'll point it out to you. And so if you see the Dead Sea in the center of your screen, just say amen, amen. All right, so go on up the Jordan River. The Jordan actually flows from Mount Hermon all the way south into the Dead Sea, but if you go a little north of the Dead Sea uh, just to the east of the, of the Jordan River you 'll see Bethany east of the Jordan. If you do please say Amen so I know you 're looking at it so that 's about the area where Jesus was at this time. This was a memorable area for the Lord. Why? Because this is where he was publicly water baptized three years earlier from where we are in the Bible by John the Baptist, right in that area. If you'll go with us to Israel, we're gonna go in a year and a half, uh, I'll take you to that spot. Now we're not gonna go over to Jordan because when you stand on the West Bank and you look over to Jordan, you actually see the soldiers with their rifles Um, But we'll take you on the the West Bank side to that place. It's called Kaiser El Yahud. And uh, I'll share a devotional there about what happened when Jesus was baptized. So this is a secluded area away from the hostility of the religious leaders. And it's also a very fruitful area. I'm not talking about fruit that you eat. I'm talking about another kind of fruit. And it's in the very last verse of chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 42. It says that while Jesus was there in Perea, many, what's the next word? Believed. Believe. That's the kind of fruit. We're talking about the fruit of souls. Many believed in him there. Now, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, I just want you to say amen right now. Amen. Okay, so concerning the death date of Jesus, the best evidence that we have is this, he died on April the 3rd, A.D. 33. Now there's some good scholars that think he died in A.D. 30, but you can read the Got Question articles. I think the best evidence is April the 3rd, A.D. 33. And so when we look at the time frame of where we are in our Bible in chapter 11, here's what we discover. That in chapter 10, verse 22, when it was Hanukkah, and Jesus got into that emotional debate with the religious leaders, Well, that would have been December of AD 32. And then when we get to John chapter 12 in a couple of weeks, that chapter opens up with the phrase six days before Passover. Well, if Passover occurs in early April, then six days prior is late March AD 33. Therefore, where are we in the Bible right now? We're in chapter 11. What does that mean? That right now, We are somewhere between January, it's winter, January and March of AD 33. What does that mean? That means we're getting very, very close to the time when the Lamb of God is going to pay the price of our redemption on Calvary's cross. But before he does, he's got yet another miracle. Probably the most astounding of all up to this point in the Bible, he's got to do another miracle that has blown the minds of millions of people for the past 2,000 years. If you've read ahead, then you know I'm talking about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We're talking about a guy who's been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus speaks, because how many of you guys know the word of Jesus has power? He calls him out of the grave. Now, we're actually gonna go through that story next week because I have limited time. The Dolphins play at one o'clock. No, I'm kidding, <laughs> kidding. But I do have limited time. Um, and so I promised my staff that we're gonna, I'm gonna go 40 minutes today. We'll see. Um, but anyway, uh, we're gonna talk about that next week because I don't have time to get through the whole chapter this week. So today, it's Lessons from the Story of Lazarus, Part 1 verses one through 16, next week we'll pick it up and we'll do lessons from Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, part two. All right, so if you're right now looking at chapter 11, verse one, can you say amen? Amen. All right, so here we go. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So here we're introduced to three siblings, a family that was super close with the Lord Jesus. We're introduced here to Martha, apparently she's the oldest sister, uh, and she could at times be a self-righteous workaholic. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm referring obviously to the story in Luke chapter 10 that when Jesus and the boys came over for lunch or dinner or whatever it was, Martha was busy, do you remember this, in the kitchen preparing food? But where was her younger sister Mary? At the feet of Jesus. And Martha got mad. And Martha went out and she says, Lord, tell her to help me. I'm doing all my work around here, and what's she doing, sitting around? By the way, um, if you happen to be a workaholic, be careful about having a self-righteous attitude and comparing yourself with others that you're such a strong worker and everybody else is not. Don't be a Pharisee, okay? Don't have that attitude. Stop comparing yourself with other people. You just do what God's called you to do and let them do what God's called them to do, okay? And so Mary tries to, I'm sorry, Martha tries to tell Jesus to make Mary get to work, get in the kitchen. But what does Jesus say? No, (laughs) no, Martha. Why? Because we're introduced to the second sister here, sibling here, Um, that's Mary, because Mary has chosen the good thing. It's not gonna be taken away from her. In other words, Mary has chosen the most important thing of all. What is that? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his word, fellowshipping with the Lord. And so, that's Mary. Later, when we get to chapter 12 in a couple weeks, this same Mary is going to do an extravagant act of worship and she is going to break open a costly um, bottle of ointment and she's gonna anoint Jesus' feet with this ointment. She's gonna wipe his feet with her hair in preparation for his burial, by the way. And as I said, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. So you have Martha, you got Mary, and then you got Lazarus. Lazarus is a super close friend with Jesus, and he's very ill, which by the way, happens sometimes even to godly people. This family lives in Bethany, listen to this, of Judea, not to be confused with the Bethany that I showed you a little while ago in Perea, east of the Jordan River. In fact, we'll go back to the map, and I'll show you where this Bethany was, and so if you see Jerusalem, can you say amen? All right, so just under, under uh, Jerusalem is Bethany. It actually should be a little higher up on the map, It's just a suburb of Jerusalem. It's it's a Sabbath day's journey. It's two miles outside of Jerusalem on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. If you see Jericho there, can you say amen? Okay, remember that road from Jericho to Jerusalem filled with thieves and robbers? Okay, so Bethany was on that road. But it was just east of Jerusalem and this is where the family lived. Lazarus was sick and he was deteriorating. And so the sisters thought we need to reach out to the Lord And that's what we see in verse three. It says in verse three, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, this is a message, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's it, just a simple message. He whom you love. Now in the Greek, that word love is phileo, from where we get the English word Philadelphia, which is the city of what? Brotherly love. And so they want to remind the Lord about how much he loves Lazarus like a brother. And I want you to go back in time, 2,000 years, put yourself in the sandals of these women. They love Lazarus. This is their their brother, their only brother, right? And he's deteriorating, and they're like, he's not getting any better. We need to send a message to the Lord. And whoever's writing the message, let's say Mary's writing it, Martha would say, hey, make sure you remind Jesus of how much he loves Lazarus. I don't know if that's kinda unconscious way of manipulating the Lord to come faster, I don't know. But hey, put that in the message. And so what did they do? They give the message to a messenger and he takes off from Bethany to go to the other Bethany. Now, because it was a dire circumstance, I'm sure this messenger hurried. Now, I don't know if he had a horse, or a donkey, or a camel, but here's what I do know, that from Bethany of Judea to Bethany um, right where we had it on the map, of Perea, just beyond the Jordan River, that's about 30 to 40 miles, and if you walk briskly and you're in shape, you can do that in eight to 10 hours. And so, they give him this message to give to Jesus, and he takes off, and while he's gone, I want you, again, just kinda, Think about this. Martha and Mary are concerned. They're probably praying at their brother's bedside. Oh dear, Adonai, and I, please, please, don't take him. Please heal our brother. You ever been there? Or they're pacing all around the house and the yard. You know, I hope Jesus comes soon. You ever been there? Or, you know, they're, they're having a discussion. Hey, we just sent this messenger and it's about a day uh, to get out to where John the Baptist used to baptize. So if he gets there tonight, then, then Jesus could actually be here by the end of the day tomorrow. I hope he, he comes. And so, hey, Lazarus, can you hear us? Hang on, brother. Help's on the way. Jesus is gonna be there or here as fast as he can. Now, if the guy leaves in the early morning and he made it to Jesus by sunset, all right? And so there's Jesus and the disciples. Here comes the messenger. He gives the message to Jesus. Lord, the one who you love is ill. He knows this from Mary and Martha. He knows this talking about Lazarus. How does he respond to this message? Before I read verse four, I gotta remind you guys, I know you know this, but I wanna remind you guys that Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus. Christ. The cults, the Jesus of the cults teach that Jesus was a created being outside of the essence and nature of God. Whether the cults say that he was an exalted angel or whatever, um, it's something different. It's another Jesus who, by the way, cannot save you Let me also expose a a false teaching within a lot of evangelical churches and they say, Philippians 2, that the kenosis or the self-emptying of Christ when he became a man is that he um, some say that he uh, emptied himself of his divinity. Others will say that he emptied himself of his divine power. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a false teaching. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. He did not empty himself of his divine attributes. He humbled himself and became a servant He became a man, he took on human flesh, but he was still God. And by the way, he didn't stop being God before he went to the cross either. There's all kind of false teachings about Jesus because the devil's alive and he's trying to get us off base. And so Jesus was fully God and fully man. That means that he was absolutely omniscient, he was all-knowing. And he knew what we don't. And with that in mind, now we can see his response in verse four. It says, but when Jesus heard this, or he read the message, he said, quote, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, that's an awesome response. (laughs) Did you guys just realize that Jesus again claimed to be divine? Did you catch that? If anybody says Jesus never claimed to be divine, they're just not reading the New Testament carefully enough. Because ladies and gentlemen, we've seen it over and over in in John's Gospel, right? Jesus said to the religious leaders back in 858, um, before Abraham was, help me out, I am. am. God speaking to Moses from the burning bush, I am. And not just that, he said, I and the Father are? One, literally one essence, one nature. Not one person, one essence, one nature. And then also, uh, now he says, look at it again, um, in verse four, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God, he calls himself the Son of God here, may be glorified through it. And so in his omniscience, Jesus knows Guess what, by the time this guy gets to Jesus with the note, we're gonna find out later, I'll teach you a timeline so you can make sense of all this. He's gonna know that Lazarus was already dead when he gets the message. Yet in his omniscience, he says, this illness is not gonna lead to death. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Lazarus is already dead. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's obviously talking about permanent death. And what's going to happen in the second half of chapter 11, which we'll study next week, that is going to ensure that Lazarus doesn't stay in the tomb. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. And that supernatural act is going to be for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We'll find out later so that people will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You guys tracking with me this morning? All right, so look at verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved, for some reason, John around AD 90 changes the word there to agapao, agape, unconditional love. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard, follow this, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Whoa, hang on, time out a minute. Did we just read that right? Jesus loved his family so much he stayed where he was for two more days? Now, does that make sense to anybody? When someone that you're best friends with dies or people that you, like a pao oh, that you love unconditionally are emotionally a wreck and distraught, don't you drop everything to get there as soon as possible, to spend time with that person or with those people, you would think verses five and six would say this. Now Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Therefore, when he got the message that Lazarus was ill, he took off for Judea because there wasn't a moment to waste. It's not what it says. It says he remained where he was beyond the Jordan for two more days. Now we know from verses 17 and 39 which we'll cover next week that Lazarus by the time Jesus gets to Bethany of Judea gets to Lazarus' tomb. He'll have been in there dead, his corpse, for four days. Jesus is gonna stand uh, stand outside the the, uh, tomb and he's gonna say, take away the stone. Does anybody, if you read ahead, does anybody remember how Martha responds to that? She protests, no, Lord. In the King James Version, let me read it for you. In the King James Version, quote, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) For he hath been dead four days. And she's right. You know, after someone dies, uh, decomposition sets in between one and three days. And then the body starts to smell, or in the king's language, starts to stinketh, right? So you say, why are you saying all this? I'm, I'm saying all this to establish the timeline, And so since Lazarus had been dead for four days, by the time Jesus gets to his tomb, a plausible uh, timeline is this. Day one, Jesus receives the message. Not that Lazarus died. He receives the message that Lazarus is ill, but he knows Lazarus has already died. Day two, he remains in Bethany in Perea. Day three, he remained in Bethany in Perea. Day four, he reaches Bethany in Judea. Hey, everybody, how do you guys think Mary and Martha felt about this schedule? (laughs) I mean, they just lost their brother. You guys, some of you have lost loved ones that you love more than life. You know how they felt. And if that didn't sting enough, Now Jesus, for whatever reason, is prolonging his visit to go and comfort them. You guys think that maybe they were hurt? Maybe they're angry? Maybe they're confused? Let's think about this from the sisters' perspective. All right, let's look at their timeline. Day one, they sent the messenger. Soon after this guy leaves, their brother dies. Takes his last breath. Their whole world is falling apart. Day two, they waited. Day three, they waited. How many of you guys know when you're grieving, the days are really long? Day four, they waited. And then probably at the end of that day, close to sunset, Jesus comes. When did the messenger get back to Bethany? Remember, this is a serious situation. So he hightails it to Bethany of Perea, beyond the Jordan, to give Jesus the message. And then, most likely, he goes back pretty fast too, eight to 10 hours. What does that mean? Well, he wouldn't travel at night because we know the road from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem, story of the Good Samaritan, is filled with thieves and robbers. So he gets up next morning and he goes, so probably by the end of day two, this guy makes it back to the sisters. And no doubt, when they see him coming, again, on his donkey, camel, whatever, horse, maybe he's walking or whatever, they're like, hey, Where's Jesus? Why isn't he with you? What did he say? And this guy says, hey, I got good news. Jesus said, this is what he said, and I'll quote it to you guys. He said, sisters, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He said it's not unto death. And so Lazarus is getting better, right? He's improving? And they're like, No, he died soon after you left. What is going on? You see, what's going on is everybody in the Bible right now has a human perspective, but Jesus has a divine perspective. He's up to something. And that's what we have to do as Christians. We have to get the divine perspective and stop being down here with the human perspective. I'll explain more about that in a moment. But I think they were hurt, I think they were confused, I think they were angry. And so, they may have even wondered, why didn't Jesus heal our brother from afar? He's the son of God, he has the power to do that. Hey, they knew the story of John chapter four, when Jesus healed the noble man's son. Now I know for our church, um, we were in John chapter four like two years ago, okay? so. Let me just remind you of what happened there. A noble man, an official, probably on Herod Antipas' court, high ranking official, his son gets the fever and is about to die. They lived in Capernaum, Sea of Galilee, that's right up there at the top. This dad hears about Jesus and he's a miracle worker. So he goes and finds Jesus in Cana of Galilee, which is 20 miles away from his son. It's where Jesus turned water into wine just north of Nazareth. He asked the Lord, come and heal my boy. And what does Jesus say to him? And I quote, go, your son will live. So dad goes back and as he's on his way back the next day, guess what, some messengers run into the dad and they said, your son's better, the fever's gone. And they told him when it happened, the day before, and it was the same time when Jesus said, the very hour Jesus said, go, your son will live. How many of you guys know that Jesus doesn't have to be in the room? He can just speak the word. He's got power. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. He still has the same power today. He's still in the miracle working business today. He still does supernatural things today. By the way, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in effect today. The cessationist view that some gifts have stopped is not tenable biblically, it's untenable. All the gifts are with us until the rapture of the church or Jesus comes back for his saints. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, and so listen. Listen, if you need the Lord to show up, you need to ask. You need to knock. And you need to seek. And you need to believe that he has the power to just speak it and it can be so. And so Martha and Mary, they knew the power of Christ, but they're confused because right now where we are in the Bible from their vantage point, hey, guess what? He may have showed up for the nobleman, but he has not shown up for us. He hasn't been there for us in our time of need. And from their perspective, he's just late. Again, this is a human perspective. They don't have the divine perspective. So they're like, he's late. And maybe the devil's whispering in their ear, you think he really even cares anymore for you? Now what's the truth? Here's the truth right here. Though he chose to delay Jesus was never late. His timing was always, what's the word? Perfect. He's perfect, his timing's perfect, and it still is today. And so here's what you gotta understand. God is sovereign, okay? And so God is not on Martha's timetable. He's not on Mary's timetable. He's not on your timetable. And he's not on my timetable either. God is sovereign. Okay, so even though we may pray and wait and pray and wait and pray and wait, he sees the big picture. He's read the rest of the book and he knows what to do and when to do it and he's never late. Now, I was super challenged by this as a younger man. Um, When I was in my 20s and 30s, early 30s, super challenged by this. What does that mean? That means by the time I was 20 years old, I knew I was called into full-time ministry. You know when I actually went into full-time ministry? When I was 34, 34, I became part-time ministry when I was 33, full-time ministry when I was 34. You say, what in the world was going on during your 20s and early 30s? Costco wholesale. Yeah, so let me back up. I got saved when I was 17 years old, and then not long after that, sometime in the next couple years, I knew I was called to ministry, so I went away to Bible college. That's what you do. I went to Bible college for two years. Met, fell in love with my wife, got married. Got a job at Costco. Now, I knew I was called to ministry, and I thought, this is just a temporary thing. Pretty soon, God's gonna give my wife and I and our girls um, a nice church, little church. We're gonna live happily ever after. Year one, year two, year three, year four. So here's what I did, and I wanna encourage some of you guys, right? Um, By the way, this is Coach Mike talking now. So let me just spur you on in the locker room to get on the field and get in the game, okay? During that time, I call it my Costco wilderness experience. But during that time, listen, I, my wife and I stayed active in local churches. We didn't just come and sit, soaking and sour, we got active and we connected and we grew and we invested financially and served in the local churches that we were in. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just say, pause and say this. Um, it's easier for God, I mean, let me back up. Let me ask you a question. What's easier? To turn a car that's in parked, park? or to turn a car that's moving. You tell me. Moving. It's easier for God to accomplish his ultimate will for your life if you'll just get moving. Because as long as you stay in park, listen, God's a gentleman, he's not gonna force you to do anything. But if you find out where what local church Christ is calling you to, when you, decide this is my local church and I'm gonna get active, moving, serving the Lord and I'm gonna connect, I'm gonna grow, I'm going to invest financially and I'm gonna start serving somewhere, sometime during the week. I'm busy, but I'll figure it out. I'll go to the next steps page, I'll go to the serving page, I'll figure it out. But see, when you start doing that, then, listen, if you're faithful in little things, how many of you guys know that God will increase the things and then you'll be faithful in larger things? But back to my story, I'm at Costco, and um, year after year is passing, so I finished up my bachelor's degree in biblical studies, I earned my first master's degree in um, uh, psychology and counseling, stayed active in different churches, but nothing's happening. I sent resumes to different places around the country, nobody wants me, so I just keep working at Costco. Now there's nothing wrong with Costco. Costco's a great company. There's nothing wrong with driving a forklift if that's what God's called you to do. But I knew I was called to be a pastor and I don't know what's going on, right? Do I smell bad or something? I don't know what's going on. One of the lowest points of my life, it wasn't the lowest, but one of the lowest points in my life, I get to work around 5.30 in the morning This was Costco Depot. It used to be Riviera Beach, Florida, and now it's moved um, down south. But it's the distribution center for all the Costcos in southern Florida. So I get to work around 5.30, and um, you know, hey, let me just say, truck drivers, so many truck drivers are awesome. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what? Some truck drivers are foul. Really foul. I could tell you some nasty stories. I'll tell you one now. I hope I don't gross you out. But one of the truck drivers decided he was gonna, sorry, go number two underneath his 45 foot trailer. And so I get to work at 5.30 and guess what? I'm a little man on totem pole and so guess who got to go clean up the poo? At 5.30 in the morning and I'm scooping up human feces and God has called me into ministry. And so what was going on? Thank God in October of 1999, October 1st, 1999, um, I walked in and later, next the following week, my wife and kids walked in with me. Um, By the way, Megan was nine, Mandy was five, Mary was two. And we walked into a church called Calvary Chapel Jupiter. It's now called Calvary Jupiter. And I saw a guy in the parking lot. He had this big, curly, bushy mullet. And I thought he was just parking cars. I'm like, hey, what's up, man? And then what I found out, when after worship, contemporary worship, this guy walks up to the platform with his Bible. Same guy in the parking lot. He opens it up, and for the first time ever, I sat in a church service where I was fed the word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And listen. It absolutely changed my life. Why? It wasn't a motivational speaker. It was a Bible teacher and I was fed. Jesus told Peter, feed the flock of God. And so nine months later, Dan hired me. Pastor Dan Plord hired me uh, first as the part-time care pastor, 15 months later as a full-time care pastor when I was 34 years old. My dream came true. By the way, his story, not my story. You can go down there and ask him if you want. He'll tell you the same thing. But he said literally that God woke him up in the middle of the night and said to him, hire Mike Wiggins. That's his story, not my story. And I still, and there's times I'll still joke with Dan that you're the one who rescued me from Costco. But really, it was the Lord. The Lord did it. And listen, why are you saying all this? Here's why I'm bringing all this up. I'm bringing all this up is because in my 20s and early 30s, I could have been so tempted, right, to say, God, you're late. <laughs> Where are you? I thought you called, you called me when I was 18 or 19 years old to be a pastor. What's going on? Why am I still driving this forklift? Year five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. What's going on? I could have done that. But if you're listening right now, say amen. Amen. Are you ready for this? God had to do a work in me before he could do a work through me. What is that? Spiritual maturity. Christ-likeness. I had to grow up. I had to learn how to deal with people. And I had to learn God's word. And I had to learn how to serve, and I had to learn the lesson that there's no job that I'm too good for, that I'll do whatever God wants me to do, even if that means cleaning bathrooms, because I'm not here to be served, I'm here to serve. I'm here to love, I'm here to minister. It's not like the, and and please, guys, if you have this mentality about the pastors here, please stop it. We're not like up here, and everybody else is down here. If anything, we're down here, you're up here, and we're called to minister and serve and love and comfort you. One clap. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm going to repeat it again. We'll put it on the screen. Though Jesus chooses to delay, he is never late. His timing is always perfect, and it still is. When you are going through a difficult situation in your life, when it's dark in your life, you have a choice. You can either take the human perspective or you can take the divine perspective. If you take the human perspective, like Martha and Mary, you're going to become hurt, angry, and confused. But if you'll take the divine perspective, then you're gonna know, Romans eight twenty nine that God predestined you to be conformed into the image of his son. That's the divine view. God predestined you to be conformed into the image of his son. And you know how he does his sanctification work? A lot of times, he uses trials, troubles, tribulations, cleaning up human feces at 4.30 in the morning in a Costco parking lot. He takes us through difficult times. James put it this way. Count it all. Shout out the word. Joy, Joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, hardships of various kinds. For you know, divine perspective, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But ladies and gentlemen, if you keep running away from those trials and difficulties, you're not going to have the Lord to be able to develop that steadfastness in you. Embrace your trial. Count it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, or here it is, perfect and complete, spiritual maturity, Christ-likeness, lacking in nothing. I don't know who you are, I don't know how difficult it is right now or how dark it is, but ladies and gentlemen, please don't take the human perspective. There's other future chapters in your story and it's going to get great. So keep your eyes on the Lord. Amen? Look at verse 7. It says now in verse seven, then after this, after he had waited two days in Perea, he said to the disciples, hey, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You remember Hanukkah? (laughs) And are you gonna go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, the sunlight. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's speaking figuratively again. He's using the figures of daylight and darkness to make a point to his fearful disciples who don't want to go to Judea and die. (laughs) So basically, what is he saying? Well, the sun gives people 12 hours or so of daylight that they need to travel to work. And then, as long as they have sunlight, they're not going to stumble. And so they can get their work done. They can travel, get to where they're going. But one day, the sun sets, or at night, the sun sets, Darkness comes. No one travels in that day and age. No one traveled at night. Thieves and robbers were on the roads. No one worked at night in that agrarian community. Why? You'll stumble in the dark. So he's using these metaphors, but what's the deeper meaning? If you're listening, say amen here. Here's the deeper meaning. Jesus is saying that, hey, guess what? God, the Father, has called me to certain good works, and just like people complete their work during the day, I've got to complete what the Father has called me to do before Passover, before the sunset of my earthly life. The night of my betrayal and arrest and scourging and spitting and mocking and crucifixion is coming very fast. And so I need to make sure that I get everything done that the Father has called me to do. And as I'm doing that, I am indestructible. And since you guys are with me, you're indestructible too. So pack your bags, stop being afraid. We're going to Judea who cares about those religious leaders we are serving the Lord and his angels are all around us that's basically what the Lord is saying time to apply it what does this mean for you for me for us what it means is that we should be committed to complete the work that God has called us to do before the sunset of our lives as we do his work we will be what's the word indestructible Jesus, I don't know who he's saying it to this morning, but he's saying to one of you guys or ladies in verse nine, if anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. In other words, stop being afraid. It's still daytime. Everybody take a deep breath. Go ahead. Okay, you still have breath in your lungs. So get busy serving the Lord. Stop giving into. to Apathetic Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. Get busy before the sun sets on your life. As long as you're walking in the light and doing God's work, you're not going to stumble. No fatal harm is going to come to you. When God says your time is up, that's when your time is up, and not a day before. You're, indest- you're literally indestructible, Christian. If you're keeping your eyes on the light of the world and doing the work of God that God has called you to do, you're indestructible. Now, different sermon for a different time. If you are smoking, eating a ton of carbs and sugar, and riding your motorcycle 100 miles an hour down 95, weaving in and out of traffic, then you're going to reap what you sow, and God will sovereignly probably move your timeline back. But that's another sermon for another time. All right, so um, (laughs) here's here's what you got to understand. Paul put it this way. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, shout out the next two words, good works. We're not saved by good works, right? We're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so this is mind-blowing to me. There is an infinite God who exists um, outside, transcends, even though he works within. He exists outside of the space-time material universe. And before he spoke the universe into existence, ex nihilo, he thought about you. What? Yeah, he thought about you. And he prepared beforehand certain good works that he wants you to walk in. He pre-planned. Of course, we're supposed to read and live out the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But listen, God has a special plan for you. And time's running out. The, sunset is, the sun is gonna set on your life and on my life. So while it's day, hey, let's get busy doing those works, doing what he specifically has called us to do. If you don't know what that is, ask him, and not if, but when he tells you, I would surrender to it. Just surrender to him. Some of you guys are resisting the Lord. That's a big mistake, Let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What are you doing uh, resisting the Lord? Surrender to the Lord. He's kind, he's good, he's loving. He's never gonna give you more than you're able to handle. So submit to him, and when he tells you, not if, but when he tells you what he wants you to do, Surrender to that. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing more fulfilling than being smack dab right in the center of God's will, doing what God has called you to do. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. I'm teaching like hundreds of people here and a lot of people were watching online. You got to hear me. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, right? Right? That's where it's at. The culture will tell you to run and seek and go after this, that, and the other, but guess what, at the end of the day, you're gonna be empty. Jesus is the answer and Christ's specific will is the answer for your life. Find out what that is and surrender to it. It's not in the notes. Clark, please, and Marielle, stand up. So this is Clark Zen, he's an elder in our church. Marielle um, uh, teaches across the street. Go ahead, stand up. Turn around, say hi, okay. So Clark, Clark actually left his career at Florida Power and Light, right? Because he felt a specific call to be a missionary, and he went, and now he's a pilot at Missionary Flights International in Fort Pierce, okay? So that's all I'm talking about. If you, by the way, if you wanna support them, you can talk to them and support them. Um, but, but, but this is cool, right? You got a career, you got everything lined up financially, then God comes knocking on your door. Are you gonna be afraid like the disciples? We're not gonna to go to Judea, are you kidding? They're gonna kill you, and us too. <laughs> or are you going to say, get behind me, Satan, get behind me, fear, and just do God's will? So, C.T. Studd, he did so much in the power of the Holy Spirit. This guy lived to the uh, turn of the 20th century, and I'm finally going to give him credit. I'm always quoting this. I never given him credit. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Find out what the Lord wants you to do. Grab it. Be passionate about it, and go for it. Last verses, verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. You know, a few nights of good sleep, he'll get better. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought (laughs) that he meant taking rest and sleep. Praise God the Holy Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost so they can start getting it, us too. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, guys, Lazarus has died. (laughs) I just gonna tell you plainly. And for your sake, I'm glad. And they're looking at him like he's crazy. No, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may, what's the word? Believe. But let us go to him. Right, and Thomas can't stop thinking about Hanukkah and the bullies with the rocks He's so dramatic. And so he says, he's called the twin. He says to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> it's so funny. All right, so in conclusion, stay with me to the end here. While everybody is sad, Martha, Mary, messenger, disciples, Lazarus died. They all love him. Jesus is glad. You know why he's glad? because he knows the rest of the story. He knows what he's gonna do next week when we gather back here again. Okay, and so get the divine perspective. Stop having the human perspective. What's the divine perspective? The divine perspective is that this miracle of raising Lazarus, a guy who's been in the tomb for four days dead, raising him back to life, is gonna strengthen the faith of his disciples who gotta carry on his work after he's gone. It's gonna strengthen the faith of Martha and Mary who gotta carry on his work after he's gone. It's going to spark faith in thousands and thousands of Jews who are gonna come to Christ and Gentiles, when they hear about this story of him raising Lazarus, and if you're listening, say amen here. I love this part. Lazarus' resurrection is a, is, is a beautiful picture um, of both our spiritual resurrection, when we're born again, and our physical resurrection, when we get new bodies at the end of the age. Do you think that accomplishes a lot? You see, by the time we, end the, by the time we get to the end of the story next week, Doubt's gonna be turned into faith. Confusion's gonna be turned into clarity. Mourning's gonna be turned into dancing. Why? Because death is turned into life. That's the divine perspective. <laughs> Last point. Jesus knows the rest of your story, so trust in him. You see, right now it may be very dark And difficult and hard. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. He knows the rest of the story. There's chapters in the future of your story, future chapters in your story. And ladies and gentlemen, it's wonderful. God has a wonderful plan for your life and all things the seemingly good things and the seemingly bad things all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose i'm going to ask the ministry team to come on up right now if you're here today and by the way every gathering we have an invitation sometimes it's before the closing prayer, sometimes it's after. Okay, so today it's gonna be after. So if you're here today and you're not sure if you're going to heaven when you die, you're not sure you're saved, you're not sure if if you have a relationship with Jesus, these people are here, they would love to take a Bible, they're not gonna shove anything down your throat or force you to do anything, um, but they, they would love to have the privilege and the honor To take a bible and to share with you how you can know that you know that you have eternal life so please don't get in your car and leave and if you miss a few minutes of the dolphins game it's okay just record it right but but listen nothing's more important than knowing that you're born again and you're a child of god so the invitation in a moment after the closing prayer as people are leaving you come forward to receive Christ, get saved, and then after you're saved, get baptized. Follow the Lord, so simple. Now, if you need prayer for anything else, that they're up there here too for any kind of prayer. I would say those of you who want to accept Christ as your savior, come to the middle. So Pastor Matt will be in the middle, he'll handle that. If you need prayer about other things, come to the sides. So, so, so listen, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, okay? I also wanna say, um, if you're watching online, the gospel is on our website. You go to um, I'm New Here and Knowing Christ, that it's right there. I love you guys. Pastor Andrew, come on out.